Well, I think uh, I'll just uh, tell you up front, uh, Don assigned me these three titles without talking to me. Uh, and that's what uh, nurses do. That's what nurses do, he said. <laughs> and so uh, the three uh, titles, of course, were the top mental performance uh, one earlier this morning, and then the one about uh, suicide and suicide prevention uh, that we were able to touch the surface on a little deeper than that. And then this one about uh, the 20 questions, uh, 20 common questions of uh, health questions of young people. And I think one of the reasons why he may have done this is we, uh, when we're on uh, 3ABN, we get uh, uh, inundated with uh, questions, and it is um, during the live call-in program. And uh, whenever we're on, I used to run a program called Ask the Doctor in the little town of Ardmore, Oklahoma, and, and got uh, a, a ton of questions there as well. Sometimes it's easier when it comes from a caller or when uh, you don't have to be the one raising your hand on it. But since we do have a group of young people uh, here, uh, before I go through these, I could give you some of the 10 most wanted doctor tips, uh, but I want to make sure that I at least uh, address uh, 20 questions from this audience, and so I'm not going to give you very lengthy answers, but uh, uh, I'll give you up to 20 uh, different questions and only one question per person. But let me just uh, start out that way. Any of you have a particular health question that you would like to uh, pose at this point in time? All right, I actually don't uh, see any hands yet. Uh, and so I will forge into this, and if you have any uh, questions uh, during this presentation, you can uh, always uh, ask them. But remember, we'll probably run out of time, uh, and so your particular health question may not be addressed. Oh, there's one hand there. Okay, can, yes, the question is, can diabetes be cured or can it not be cured? And of course, uh, uh, there is type 1 and there's type 2. About 95% of Americans that are diabetic have type 2 diabetes now. Uh, it used to be 80%, but because it's become much more prevalent, it is now 95%. And with diabetes type 2, you have the gene for diabetes and then lifestyle pulls the trigger. We say genetics loads the gun, lifestyle pulls the trigger. And if you get on an ideal lifestyle program, and if it's caught at least reasonably early enough, diabetes can be completely reversed and cured. You'll still have the gene, which means you have to stay on the right program. But uh, uh, both of my parents, for instance, had the, uh, the, the gene uh, my mother, who was not on an ideal Adventist lifestyle program, of course developed the disease. My father, uh, that clearly did have the gene, uh, never did develop the disease, uh, simply because of his exercise, his, uh, his lifestyle uh, with uh, no sugar, low fat, uh, staying lean, and, uh, and committed to an active aerobic exercise program, uh, as well as some of the other factors never had to go on medicine, never had high blood sugars, and never had um, a problem with it, but it would have been different uh, had he not been on uh, that good lifestyle. So yes, it can be a reverse. Now once you get to the complication stage where you've got, where you're on dialysis, 
and you've had bypass surgery, et cetera, you can still get on a lifestyle that can help improve it, uh, but you won't necessarily be able to reverse or bring those kidneys back. Yes, question here. Okay, the question is if you have celiac disease, and celiac disease is a disease of gluten sensitivity, uh, your small bowel and other organs are, are sensitive to the gluten, and it actually flattens the small bowel mucosa, the 100% way of diagnosing this is with a small bowel biopsy. And uh, I actually did a small bowel biopsy yesterday morning before coming here on someone, uh, whether, you know, knowing, trying to know for sure whether the individual had celiac disease. And if you do have celiac disease, unfortunately, you do have to be free of gluten in your diet, which is a difficult diet to be on. And her question is, if you're on a good overall lifestyle program, and if you've been free of gluten for a while, would you be able to go back to it without a significant problem? Uh, the answer to that is you can go back in small amounts periodically and not have a relapse of the disease. But if you go back to eating wheat bread uh, and things that have a large amount of gluten and do it in larger amounts like most people consume, uh, the disease will come back. And it, uh, but you, uh, when you first are diagnosed with gluten, you want to stay away from anything that has even a little bit of gluten in it. And of course, some grains that don't have gluten actually have a little bit of gluten in it because they're manufactured uh, on the same um, equipment that wheat and other gluten foods are there, and even in small amounts, it can be quite problematic. But over time, if you are removed from it, you'll actually be able to go back to small amounts without a major relapse. Okay, we'll take uh, a question here and then one there. All right, what about uh, the uh, ideal diet, uh, the plant-based vegetarian or vegan diet, uh, should you be on supplements? Well, if you are, uh, first of all, it's important to recognize, uh, the, and I'll just state up front, the healthiest diet to be on is a plant-based vegetarian diet that is nutritionally adequate. And of course, you can be on a vegan diet and be on a very nutritionally inadequate diet. You can just drink soda pops all day and that's vegan, but it's not a healthy diet and is one that's gonna produce a significant amount of problems. And so you want it to be nutritionally adequate. And uh, how can you get B12 on a plant-based vegetarian uh, program? Uh, animals actually don't make B12 uh, and neither do plants, but bacteria do. And so uh, bacteria is the, the, the source of vitamin B12. And if you don't wash your fruits and vegetables, um, you actually have uh, quite a bit of B12 uh, along with them. Uh, if you don't brush your teeth, uh, your, the bacteria in your mouth will actually start making B12. Uh, and, uh, and of course, those are ways that we actually uh, don't recommend that you get your B12. We actually recommend you wash your fruits and vegetables uh, and you also brush your teeth 
and hopefully you have a competent ileocecal valve. If, you, if, if you've had surgery where you have your small bowel hooked up to your colon, you'll never need any B12 in your life because your colon makes plenty of B12. The problem is it's absorbed further on back in the small bowel. But if you've had a surgery where that valve is incompetent, you'll be able to have a very high B12 level without, any ta without ever consuming any. But we recommend, no, not a bypass. Bypass will actually deplete you even further. Uh, but uh, we, uh, we actually recommend that to be safe, since B12 supplements are, are plentiful and very inexpensive and are not problematic, uh, to be safe uh, to take a B12 supplement. And the best way, of course, is chewing that B12. The multivitamins that you get, where you swallow them whole, you're probably not getting much B12 at all uh, from that or taking them sublingually. And the best B12 supplement on the market is actually far better than what you get in animal foods that have a lot of bacterium in them, called hydroxycobalamin. It's a detoxifying B12. Most of the B12 on the market is cyanocobalamin, which has a cyanide molecule in the middle of it. Not a problem because it's tightly bound to it, but I like the B12 to be a cyanide scavenger. That was one of the purposes of B12. And, uh, and so the hydroxycobalamin is the best way to go. And uh, it's easy to be able to get that. One of the things I'll just mention, B12 deficiency in young people, one of the most early symptoms is mouth sores, frequent mouth sores. And if you're sensitive to fruits and vegetables like peaches, uh, strawberries afterwards, and you start getting mouth sores, you are probably deficient in B12. And uh, by taking a B12 supplement, that hydroxycobalamin a day, you'll be able to eat all sorts of fruits and vegetables and not have to worry about the mouth sores. And so in young people, that's probably the most common early symptom uh, of a B12 deficiency. Uh, what dose? Uh, you can take up to 3,000 micrograms a day. Above that, you start depleting your melatonin uh, that you're putting out at night. Uh, it comes in either 100 or 1,000 micrograms, and uh, you don't even need to necessarily take it every day. A young person uh, probably could take 1,000 micrograms a week, and it would be fine. The older you get, the less B12 you absorb, and so to take it 1,000 a day is not going to be a problem. If you're starting to get mouth sores, we would recommend you take 1,000 a day until you don't, don't get the mouth sores anymore, and then you might be able to back off from there. Okay, question here. Can you overwork out? Yes, absolutely you can. In fact, we'll find this sometimes when we do people's blood work, we'll see their CPKs elevated. Their muscle enzymes actually break down as a result of overworking out. And that's not a healthy thing uh, to do. Uh, yeah, depending on what you're working out. Now, the muscles that are the healthiest to work out on a regular basis are your large muscles. And that's what produces the best metabolic results for you. What are the largest muscles in the body? They're actually there in the legs. And that's one of the advantages of brisk walking, running, uh, swimming, those type of things. Bicycling, uh, that's where you're going to get your best metabolic uh, benefit is by pushing those large muscles and that's where you can uh, produce that significant benefit. If you are running, we don't recommend over eight miles a day uh, simply because of the adverse health effects of running more than eight miles a day. You can actually walk that much and more. Uh, it's kind of interesting for years in America up until a few years ago, 
the individuals who walked across America ended up beating those who ran across America. And in the Guinness Book of World Records, you would see that the times were shorter in those who walked across versus those who ran across America. Uh, and walking is something that you can, of course, have a greater in endurance in doing. As far as upper body types of exercises where you're really getting into the bulk and the muscle building and it's more uh, about appearance than it is about health, uh, then often it is, um, it is best to actually switch uh, in regards to those exercises. You're not necessarily doing them every day because as you, as you start to gain that bulk, there is a very strong tendency to overdo it and you get into that elevated uh, CPK stage, which actually isn't good for your kidneys and it's not really good overall for your health. And so alternation would be a good way to go. Okay, question here. All right. Uh, the question is, uh, he trains for marathons, and how can you train for marathons and still be healthy? Uh, and uh, actually, believe it or not, marathon running is not a healthy thing to do. It's been well studied out, uh, and uh, studies show that when you run a marathon, 26 miles, your immune system is suppressed significantly afterwards. You're much more likely to develop a a cold or another uh, infection. Uh, you're actually more likely to have cancer cells start to multiply as a result of that marked suppression of the immune system that occurs after running a marathon. And so the question I would have is why are you running a marathon? Uh, and uh, you know, is this something that you may want to reevaluate? If you absolutely have to do it as part of your job or part of your career or part of uh, whatever, uh, then you want to do it in the healthiest way possible. And of course that plant-based vegetarian diet will help with that. It helps with endurance. Uh, there's some uh, extra uh, uh, vegetable-based proteins that can be helpful for this and then just living the lifestyle the best you can, recognizing that you're going to have that suppressant effect on your immune system uh, in doing some of those, uh, uh, you know, greater than uh, really what the human being was designed, at least at this stage, to be doing. Um, you need to recognize that's going to be an adverse health effect. Yes? All right, avoiding, the question is about someone that has depression and... All right, are you doing something that's aggravating it more? I would recommend that you get acquainted, I mean the simple short answer uh, is to get acquainted with our materials. We do have a material online uh, where you can be certified on how to help people with depression and actually run depression recovery programs. And those things will help, uh, they're not going to hurt, uh, but it's, uh, it's a 17-hour course uh, that we have uh, for that. And um, if you have any specific questions on what might help or, or might hurt, I could answer that. But that's the, that's the simple short answer to that, is to learn about depression is not just a simple disease and it's only one cause. It's multifactorial and every individual has different causes. But as you get acquainted with those causes, you can help identify them in those individuals and help them reverse those causes so that they're uh, eventually depression-free. Okay, now let's, uh, let's do this individual right here, yes. Are you 
uh, comment on the use of charcoal for medicinal purposes. Uh, and yes, charcoal is something that we utilize in the medical field uh, even today. Uh, one of the most common uh, uses for it is in the emergency room when someone does overdose and they try to commit suicide and charcoal can be a lifesaver by binding on to that drug in their intestinal tract and allowing it to be eliminated instead of absorbed into the system. But charcoal also works that way if you have a gastroenteritis, for instance, if you have a bad virus, you're starting to get diarrhea or nausea or vomiting, uh, charcoal can bind on to that toxic agent or that infectious agent and help you eliminate it uh, quicker. Uh, and then, of course, it also can be utilized uh, for uh, getting rid. It, it's more of a detoxifying agent, but it also can actually even bind on to cholesterol. One of the, uh, if you have a very high cholesterol level, uh, consuming charcoal in between meals is one of the quickest way of getting that down. It'll actually work even better than a statin in, uh, in lowering cholesterol. But you want, of course, do it in between meals, uh, not during meals, and you want to have those meals be healthy uh, for the individual so that it's not actually absorbing onto food. And then, of course, it can be used on the skin after a bee sting or after um, even a spider bite. Uh, it can help to uh, absorb that toxin. And uh, so we utilize charcoal on a daily basis for, for virtually all of those things. Yes, question here. I'm a nurse and I've seen uh, patients that have black colons from taking aloe. And I'm just wondering, is that a cosmetic thing? <laughs> that only the doctor sees, or is it really a health issue that is... Okay. All right, uh, the question is about uh, stained colons. We call it melanosis coli. And we will see this at colonoscopy. The colon, the individual might look healthy on the outside and then you go in and you, you know, it's a, you know, everyone comments in the room when you're doing the colonoscopy, whoa, look at this. We know what this individual's been doing. And uh, that, it's usually taking laxatives. Um, it's Senna products that actually do that, S-E-N-N-A. And those Senna products uh, actually not only stain the colon, it's not just a, co a bad uh, cosmetic thing in the colon, but it also actually deadens the nerves of the colon so that the motility is significantly decreased. And so these individuals become more and more dependent on laxatives and then eventually laxatives don't work and the individual will just get totally backed up, uh, obstipation, sometimes end up in the hospital, severe abdominal pain, and their colons can be just completely dilated and full of stool and nothing moving through. The other day, and a young, this can occur in any age group, and the, the other day uh, I had a 22-year-old individual that we removed a basketball-sized stool impaction from the individual's rectum um, who had gotten involved in utilizing Senna products, and unfortunately, these Senna products are advertised as natural laxatives. And so they're nature's laxatives, and so people think that they're eating, you know, consuming something natural that's going to help them. And I have to remind them tobacco is a natural product. Just because it's natural doesn't mean that it's good for you. Uh, and so uh, they have to actually get off of those Senna products completely. What we normally put them on is something that's it, it's over the counter uh, called Miralax. Uh, and they might have to consume this about four times a day, and then they'll need it less and less over time as their colon uh, nerves start to come back. But it normally takes about three to four months for those nerves to come back completely. 
And actually the staining, the medical literature will tell you the staining will never go away. It actually does go away uh, over the course of years and that colon mucosa in turning over can return to, um, to good health. So yes, it's much more than a cosmetic problem and we don't recommend the use of Senna laxatives, particularly on a regular basis. Aloe won't do that. No, aloe won't do that. So if someone had it and they thought it was aloe, they're probably having Senna with the aloe. Sometimes they're combining these natural products together in one particular uh, um, product. Yes, question here. The need of vitamin D, yes, vitamin D is a, uh, is in the last 10 years, we have, the medical community has discovered all of the problems that are caused by lack of vitamin D. And it's pretty uh, prevalent. In fact, let me get to this. I wanted to uh, talk a little bit about, uh, this was the, uh, the 10 doctor tips, uh, eat foods high in antioxidants. Studies are showing, you know, for years we wondered whether antioxidants were good if you had cancer. We knew that they prevented cancer, but it was thought of if you had cancer, you wanted those cancer cells destroyed, and so you wanted to stay away from antioxidants. Uh, actually not true. Studies are showing if you have cancer, antioxidants actually help in the treatment of cancer as well. But the top 10 antioxidant fruits are tomatoes, apples, bananas, white grapes, grapefruit. Kiwi is number five. Anyone want to guess what's in the top four? Red grapes are number four, the bioflavonoids. Number three, oranges. Number two is a very humble fruit. And speaking of laxatives in the dried form, it is an important laxative. Plum. And number one, antioxidant fruit. This was the University of California at Berkeley study. Strawberries, uh, number one. And then also the uh, top 10 antioxidant vegetables, corn, onion, red bell peppers, beets, broccoli, alfalfa. Number four, Brussels sprouts, another humble vegetable, but very uh, potent as far as its antioxidant potential. Three is spinach. Spinach is also high in omega-3. Uh, we recommend spinach as an antidepressant. It actually uh, helps out and also an anti-inflammatory. Kale is number two. Anyone want to guess what the number one? Broccoli. Uh, no, broccoli is number six. Uh, not collards, no. Not cabbage. You'll kick yourself for not getting this one. There it is. Garlic, the number one antioxidant uh, vegetable. And then avoid disease-producing foods. And of those disease-producing foods, uh, uh, for instance, this study from Harvard University shows the more often you eat these foods, the worse it is. Daily use of meat, 149% increased risk of colon cancer. Five to six times a week, 84%. Two to four times a week, 50%. One time a month even had a 39% increased risk compared with the group that didn't eat uh, any meat at all. Now that's not a zero for them. There's still a chance you can get colon cancer, but that's in comparison. This was the, the used as the control group there. And even infrequent use of meat increased the risk of colon cancer, and it does this with other uh, uh, cancers. Uh, it can do it with other cancers as well. Dr. Willett stated, uh, very clearly, the more often you eat it, and the more you eat, the worse it's going to be. But he also stated there's no safe level of meat consumption, is what Harvard University showed. 
And there are some people that say, well, moderation in all things. Uh, no, there are some things that it's best to be abstinent from. Exercise regularly, at least five times a week, studies show, minimum of 30 minutes a day. And uh, the interval training, you talked about uh, some of the questions on exercise, intermittent training is the best where those muscles have a chance to recover, get their oxygen debt, where you're mixing rest with exercise, it accelerates fitness to a high level in a shorter time period, ideal for the unfit and the athlete. And we've had marathon runners that were there for competitive purposes. When they get on IT, they actually improve their times uh, and uh, also improve that muscle soreness and their thyroid function will also uh, improve. And uh, this is the equation for those who want to um, uh, get on that. Regular physical exercise reduces heart disease and stroke significantly, reduces the risk of cancer and a number of different cancers, reduces osteoporosis, the risk of kidney failure, diabetes, improves major depression, improves anxiety significantly as well as other benefits. Number four, use water liberally inside and outside. This is a study from Loma Linda University showing less than two glasses of water a day had an increased risk of heart disease and mortality. Greater than five lowered it significantly in both men and women. This was actually even more potent than taking an aspirin in preventing a disease. Other fluids, however, if you're drinking other fluids, you increase your risk even more. So it's not just fluid intake, it's water intake that's helpful. And whether it was milk or juice or whatever, it increased the risk of vascular disease. Coffee, tea, juice, and milk, the risk was reversed with heavy drinking women exhibiting more than a two-fold higher risk of dying of heart attack. Heavy non-water drinking in men was associated with a 46% increase in the risk of heart attack and stroke. And then uh, the cleanliness aspect, a number of studies showing that uh, the hygiene part is very important, not only in uh, helping your system to detoxify, but also helpful uh, in regards to preventing infection. Uh, when you wash your hands before you eat and after you eat, uh, and uh, after you've come in contact with the public, your risk of getting an infection goes down significantly. And so that's one of the advantages of hygiene. And then we talked about vitamin D. This is why I thought I'd bring it up here since we do have a slide. Sunlight in moderation reduces infection, reduces the risk of heart disease reduces the risk of cancer, improves major depression, improves anxiety, improves testosterone and estrogen levels, improves fatigue and improves muscle aches and pains. Uh, in fact, many people with vitamin D deficiency will have be misdiagnosed with fibromyalgia. When they get their vitamin D level up, the fibromyalgia completely uh, goes away. The unfortunate thing is because we're an indoor society, we have people walking around, even young people, that have been in vitamin D deficiency mode for years and it's not something that they can just get up to where they need to by being out in the sun for 30 minutes. That helps a little bit, but they really need to actually take a vitamin D mega dose supplement to get themselves up and then sunlight can maintain uh, that from there on out. And so we recommend that if you're having symptoms like this to just get a vitamin D level. It's a vitamin D 25 hydroxy level. That'll tell you about your vitamin D stores and see whether you need to be on those mega doses uh, to actually improve this. 
Vitamin D reduces the risk of prostate cancer, the risk of breast cancer, reduces the risk of colon cancer, and even the risk of lung cancer recurrence after surgery. And we now know it also reduces the risk of blood malignancies uh, as well. Now, in regards to sunlight, there's another advantage. Researchers found that men who are exposed to an hour of bright light first in the morning experience an increase in luteinizing hormone. Luteinizing hormone influences reproductive hormones in both men and women, increases in LH in men, drive up testosterone levels, while the hormone triggers ovulation in women. Uh, one of the questions, I had a couple of written questions. I probably should have gone over those. One of the written questions had to do with polycystic ovary disease. And polycystic ovary disease is due to that lack of ovulation. You have the estrogen coming out, but you don't have that LH, and thus you don't have the progesterone. And what happens with polycystic ovary disease, you tend to get overweight, uh, you tend to start growing uh, sometimes facial hair, uh, get into the bloating, those type of things. And one of the simple treatments for polycystic ovary disease is actually light therapy. Within five minutes of awakening, being exposed to either outdoor blue light or to um, blue light that actually simulates the blue sky, which you can get in medical grade light boxes. I think we have some in our booth for those that are interested, particularly in the wintertime. Uh, this, uh, this really helps. Also with polycystic ovary disease, it's associated with insulin resistance, and so we put the person on the same program that we would if they were a type 2 diabetic getting on that regular exercise program, lowering the sugar or no sugar diet, lowering the fat intake, and polycystic ovary disease actually, even though there's a genetic predisposition to it, just like there is with diabetes, PCO can actually go away and the individual can become reproductive, uh, the excess hair can go away, and uh, significant benefit uh, just from that bright light exposure through the eyes. Studies have shown it helps with depression, it also improves libido, and there's a muscle building and strengthening effect. Now, interestingly, these uh, medications that are being um, recommended on television all the time uh, for ED, uh, they don't improve libido. They're not muscle building. They're not a strengthening effect. And uh, if people would be exposed to bright light like they were in the agricultural society, we would virtually not have a need for those drugs in our society. And so uh, it is a pretty simple, but you know, in today's uh, world, I'll tell you as an internal medicine doctor, I have men in their 30s and 40s coming in asking for these drugs, uh, not able uh, to uh, perform sexually at all. And uh, it's amazing what happens after seven days of light therapy. Once they start producing the luteinizing hormone, they really don't have a need for those drugs often. When women with long and irregular menstrual cycles are exposed to bright light, the cycles actually regularize. And that's part of the PCO um, uh, syndrome as well. And of course, natural light is best for melatonin production. This study shows that when you're exposed to artificial light in the daytime, uh, you do make some melatonin at night, but not near as much. If you're exposed to at least an hour of bright light that's outdoor or simulated outdoor like these medical grade light boxes, you'll produce a lot more melatonin at night. And that's uh, uh, restorative, that's where you get the, uh, a lot more energy. Uh, and you get that nice restorative sleep. And the older you get, the more important it is for you to get the sun. 
Ellen White says, vigor declines as years advance, leaving less vitality with which to resist unhealthful influences, hence the greater necessity for the aged to have plenty of sunlight and fresh, pure air. But when you have people, when you're seeing throngs of people outdoors, which age group do you tend to see? Yeah, it's usually the younger group. The older people are not um, taking advantage uh, of this. Okay, well, those were the five. There's five more to go, but I know some of you had questions as well. What do we have to, time to go to, uh, Don? Uh, is it 4.30? It is 4.30? Okay, so we've got a few uh, minutes. All right, let me, uh, let, let's, let's go to the back. Yes. Good, thank you. Well, the best, best way to build fitness uh, and body uh, mass is actually doing the exercises and is not near as diet related as some might have you believe. Now, it is important for you to get adequate amino acids. And even in the muscle building phase, uh, if you are getting uh, uh, basically 0.8 grams uh, per kilogram of body weight, uh, in protein, you're going to be able to build enough. And you can actually do that on a plant-based vegetarian diet. It's not a difficult thing to be able to get uh, that much protein. And so we're talking, um, you know, somewhere around 60 to 70 grams of protein. Now, if you're really wanting to compete as far as this, you know, in, in these massive weightlifting championship type things, um, you can uh, build more by getting more protein, but you can get that through plant-based protein or you can get it through animal-based protein, either way. The plant-based has some significant advantages. It doesn't cause as much osteoporosis. It doesn't cause as much kidney damage. Uh, excess protein will damage the kidneys. It will leach calcium from the bones. Uh, and too much protein in the vegetable variety can do that, but it doesn't, the vegetable protein in excess doesn't uh, causes much problems as animal protein in excess. So we normally recommend for our weightlifters and ones that are going into the competition to consume just as you're recommending the soy-based proteins. Now as far as the evidence for behind, that, behind this, you could uh, look at our book, The Great Meat and Protein Myth. Actually, Proof Positive has a chapter in that. We go through all of the studies. It's very clear that you can get all nine essential amino acids without having to utilize animal uh, foods for doing that. It's one of the greatest myths in America today uh, that you have to have animal-based protein uh, for body lifting. And it's actually been disproven uh, by many of the, the great uh, Olympic weightlifters, uh, uh, some of which are vegetarian uh, and, uh, and obviously have been able to compete uh, even along those lines. Okay, a question here. Yeah, that's, that's you. Okay, natural ways of overcoming allergies. Yeah, now of course it depends on the actual allergy uh, that you have, if it's food related or, or not uh, food related. 
but if it is um, uh, if it is a true allergy, and of course, and as a medical person, what I try to find out is: is it an adverse reaction? Is it a sensitivity, or is it a true allergy? Uh, if it is a true allergy, uh, it is important, obviously, to have avoidance uh, of that particular um, uh, thing. And it's kind of like uh, we talked about with gluten earlier, where it's very important for you to completely avoid that, but after there's a period of complete abstinence, there is a time period where you can get very small exposures to it and actually uh, your allergy can actually go away to that over time. But I don't know of any way of doing it other than complete abstinence. Now, if you're not able to completely abstain from it, are there ways in which you can help that allergy out so it's not, so you don't get an asthma attack or you don't run into significant major problems? And there are some things like quercetin, one of the bioflavonoids is very helpful. Uh, in helping to combat allergies. Also getting on more omega-3 instead of omega-6 is very anti-inflammatory and so you won't have as much of the allergy type of effects in doing that. And so those are the couple of dietary things that we might recommend uh, that can help with the allergies. Yes, question there. Okay, uh, this is, uh, th the, the question itself is based on basically 1930s and 1940s data in regards to protein. We used to talk about complete and incomplete proteins and the need for complementary, but what, what that's based on is trying to simulate animal protein in the diet. Uh, the studies by Harding and Stare from Harvard University and Loma Linda showed very clearly if you eat enough broccoli, just one vegetable, to maintain your weight, you will get more than five times of each of your essential amino acids necessary uh, for, uh, for a continuation. And so it is with any vegetable, whether you take tomatoes, potatoes, any single vegetable food. In fact, it's very clear that our human um, race uh, would have been wiped off the planet um, years ago, during certain periods of famines, et cetera, if that were not the case. Uh, I remember when I was giving a presentation on protein in my town of Ardmore, Oklahoma, uh, one woman raised her hand and she said, you know, we thought it was an absolute miracle that our, uh, that our family survived the Great Depression because all we had for years was one vegetable, white potatoes. And that's all we had, that's all we could grow, and we ate that, our kids grew up on white potatoes alone and nothing else for years. And we just thought it was miraculous, and now I'm just finding out from your presentation that all eight of those essential amino acids were there. I said, well, the miracle is that God created the potato to have all of those uh, there to begin with. And, uh, and so we actually don't need, the, the, the old school thought that you have to combine grains uh, with uh, beans, et cetera, in order to be able to try to simulate the amount of protein or the same type of amino, amino acid mixture that you get in animal-based protein. But that actually doesn't need to happen, and if you want the data for that, it's back to that chapter, the great meat and protein myth. Uh, you'll get all of the information that you need in that chapter. And it's backed up by, um, uh, I mean, nutritionists today are very uh, clear uh, on it if they have, um, you know, if they're adequately 
um, educated, uh, the, that you really don't need to try to do combining to get the eight essential amino acids. Now, the only exception to that would be fruit. If you're just eating one fruit alone, you're not going to get all eight essential amino acids. But whether it's a vegetable or whether it's a grain or whether it's a nut, you actually will. Okay, uh, question right here. Well, you mentioned um, about getting natural sunlight uh, within five minutes of waking up. Is, is there any disadvantage to waking up before sunrise? All right, is there an uh, <laughs> advantage to waking up before sunrise? Yeah, in fact, this, this helps goes into, I had another written question here that was about academic performance. Someone heard one of my GYC lectures about melatonin. The early to bed, early to rise actually helps with IQ, it helps with memory. Uh, and they mentioned that they got on that program and they felt so tired uh, on that program that they gave it up. And they asked me how long it will take to actually take hold. And I said very simply, this is what our data shows, this is what we do with people, seven days. And he said, oh, I only tried it for two. No wonder. <laughs> uh, but actually, uh, you can actually accelerate that by getting on the light therapy. The light actually is what sets the body clock. And the best time to actually have that light therapy study show is about 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, there are advantages of getting up earlier. You can read. You can do some other things like that. But, you know, before, the, the evidence is before the flood came, we could go into some of this with the creation, but before the flood came, the earth was not tilted on its axis. Whatever uh, the Lord brought about to bring about this flood, uh, whether it was uh, some evidence is it was a comet actually that helped in that gravitational pull that actually tilted the earth on its axis, one of the reasons why it was a great upheaval and even the devil himself was fearful for his own life uh, when this happened. But uh, uh, when that occurred, then we have these great time fluctuations in regards to winter and summer and daylight and, and, and those type of things. But before that, sun was always up at 6 o'clock and it always went to bed at 6 o'clock. And, uh, and studies show as far as the health of the brain and other health factors, it's best to get that light at about 6 o'clock in the morning. Now, can you get up earlier and have benefits from that? Absolutely. In fact, we recommend as far as improving IQ to have that 4 o'clock in the morning or so uh, and then going to bed closer to 9 o'clock at night can actually accelerate that melatonin production and produce some significant uh, benefit there. Okay, uh, let's see. I'm trying to think of a particular area that I haven't chosen uh, from yet. Uh, maybe right there on the edge. Uh, yes, go ahead. Okay, if you crack your knuckles, are you going to get arthritis? Uh, and uh, not necessarily, however, it might uh, have to do with how vigorously you are cracking your knuckles. Uh, of course, trauma is one of the things that can bring about arthritis. Uh, and uh, the, when you're cracking your knuckles, you're actually producing a pop in that synovial fluid that's there. Uh, and, uh, and that's the sound that actually comes forth. And of course, chiropractors are very good at producing that sound uh, because of the adjustment that occurs. And of course, there are other ways. I remember my sisters when I was growing up, they used to actually step on each other's spine 
uh, in those white areas and hear those cracks and then we would hear the, the, uh, the sense of relief that came from the person on the floor uh, as a result of those, uh, of those actual cracks. Was that uh, producing arthritis in them? No, it actually wasn't. The chiropractor isn't producing arthritis when they do that either. And so primarily if it's done in a safe way, uh, it's not going to necessarily lead to that. Okay, yes, and also in the back here, yes, yeah, uh-huh. I don't know if you've already addressed this, but I know as medical missionaries, sometimes we teach that the digestive process is interrupted by eating in between meals with a 24-7 peristalsis. How is that possible, or is that, where's the foundation for that, Okay, with 24-7 peristalsis, the foundation for what? I'm not sure I actually heard the precise question. The 24-7, the idea of digestive... Okay, okay. Uh, well, there are five things that have to be constant for your stomach to empty effectively and to empty quickly. Uh, that is pH, temperature, osmolarity, size... Uh, the size actually has to be 0.3 millimeters or less. And what there, is do, there are actually sensors in the duodenum for each one of those. And so your duodenum is actually sensing what's coming out of your stomach. And if those four things are not constant, the pylorus clamps down. And your stomach starts to mix those things up again to try to get to that phase. And one of the most common reasons for indigestion, in fact, I was, if we would have had more time, I was going to close with the top uh, 10 most common health symptoms that a doctor sees, and then the 10 most embarrassing health problems that occur in your age group. Uh, but uh, one of them was indigestion, and the other is flatulence. I don't know if any, you know, some of you are too young to be embarrassed by flatulence, uh, but uh, there are others that are old enough uh, to be embarrassed by it. And it turns out when those four things uh, are, are actually um, the, um, I only named four, um, the fifth I'm blanking on right now. I mentioned uh, pH, temperature, size, osmolarity, um, and it actually, it may be osmolality. Uh, there's a little difference between those two. Uh, but the sensors in the duodenum uh, will help that stomach empty out. And when your stomach has delayed emptying, you end up with increased reflux, you end up with increased gas production. Uh, you'll actually increase the, the risk of belching and also of flatulence. And so one of the most effective ways of avoiding those problems is actually e eating less amounts of different types of food at one meal. Uh, now that means if, if, you're, on a, if you're eating a, a soup, for instance, that has a lot of different things, that only counts as one because that's pretty well mixed in. So you already have the osmolarity, the constant temperature there. But if you're eating more than five different types of things at a meal, it's going to increase uh, your risk of, of reflux, the indigestion, and the flatulence or if you are eating in between meals, uh, because as soon as you eat something and your stomach isn't emptied, it has to go through that whole process again. And so uh, there is definite rational uh, GI physiology uh, that uh, helps us to realize it is better not to eat in between meals and not be a grazer as some people uh, recommend. Okay, I think we're about uh, through and uh, un 
unfortunately, I can't be here for a very long time afterwards. I know after I do a question and answer session, those of you that didn't get your question answered might keep me here for two hours later. Uh, but I can be here for a few minutes um, uh, if you do have some individual questions that, would, that you would want to go into. I'll turn it over to our moderator here. Well, I would, I would love to hear the 10 most embarrassing things. <laughs> I wonder if you would love to hear those still. I want to be embarrassed with you in this, in this unashamed conference. You, you, need to, you need to be unashamed about the 10 most embarrassing things. Uh, unleash those for us, will you, doctor? Uh, let, me, uh, let me get uh, to them. Some of them were so embarrassing in this group that I actually didn't list them all out. Uh, so I was, uh, I was a little bit glad that we weren't going to get to it, but I can give you some of the, uh, snoring. Uh, and of course, what's the, uh, what's the secret of overcoming this embarrassing health problem? Uh, actually, it's getting down to your ideal weight. Uh, most people, if they get down to their ideal weight, will completely quit snoring at night. Now, uh, of course, there's other things that can do it. You can have nasal polyps, for instance, uh, that can produce snoring. You can have some anatomical issues in regards to your throat that can produce it. But 95% of snorers in America, if you would get down to your ideal weight, it would go away. And just, just to calculate your ideal lean weight, uh, because some people actually need to get down to their ideal lean weight to overcome, uh, it is, if you're five feet tall, that's 100 pounds. And for every inch above that, if you're a female, it's four pounds. And every inch above that, if you're a male, it's five pounds. Uh, and that's the ideal weight. And that will very often take care of the snoring problem, take care of sleep apnea and all of its problems that it causes. Uh, the drop in oxygen uh, deficit uh, that occurs, uh, et cetera. The second uh, is flatulence. Uh, we've already kind of addressed that, although there's obviously more to it. You might be able to find one of my presentations. I don't know if it's on the internet uh, for free, but I did give it at one of the camp meetings on as the gut churns, and I went into all of the GI physiology uh, there, and uh, you can learn a lot more about that. Heavy periods uh, is number three. And uh, we've already addressed a little bit about that. Yeah, if you want to be on regular cycles that are not as heavy, that light therapy is one of the most important modalities. Adequate calcium is also important. And uh, for uh, females, uh, soy also uh, seems to be uh, helpful in having those periods not as heavy. And then adequate magnesium and adequate antioxidants in the diet. We've already addressed the antioxidants, but the magnesium, calcium, and of course, part of that magnesium and calcium, we also have to look at vitamin D. Uh, vitamin D sometimes can be related uh, to this as well. And of course, that polycystic ovary, we already talked about uh, some of the dietary things that can help out in regards to those heavy periods. Uh, the fourth is acne. Acne is kind of a ditto. Acne comes out as a result, very frequently as a result of having that gene for diabetes. Uh, when you have the metabolic syndrome. And if you get on an ideal diet that's best for a diabetic, the acne uh, is much more easily controlled. 
And of course, there are other things that can help keep those pores clean uh, that you can actually purchase that can help as well. But as far as diet related, some people have said, well, chocolate, uh, getting rid of chocolate doesn't help. Well, do you know what they use for the placebo? They use sugar capsules. Well, and so that's why it seemed like chocolate nece necessarily didn't help. It turns out that if we get on uh, a program that's going to increase insulin sensitivity, uh, it actually will help, and, uh, and we've, uh, uh, we've seen that. There are some other, uh, in fact, Dr. Mills, do you have any comment uh, there in regards to lifestyle and acne? We've got a dermatologist in our group here. Okay, severe acne and milk or dairy product. Yes, yeah, clearly hormones and acne are related. And again, helping to regularize those hormones, some of the things that we talked about that earlier would help. Smelly feet. Uh, I, we can tell that this is the, the problems, you know, these were the 10 most embarrassing health problems in young people. Uh, and the, um, the uh, smelly feet uh, part of things uh, actually has to do with some bacteria uh, that reside there uh, between the toes. And uh, of course, one of the simple ways of doing that is just uh, making sure your feet are clean and making sure you have like a charcoal insert uh, to uh, help absorb uh, uh, some of that uh, smell. Uh, but there's actually some uh, dietary and other things that can help it make it more difficult for those bacteria uh, to grow and to produce that smell. Excessive hair on women, I think we've addressed that somewhat, that's kind of similar to the polycystic ovary uh, type uh, uh, syndrome, but some of it, of course, can be uh, genetic. And uh, how many was that? That was seven. Uh, the other ones uh, had to do with um, yeah, ED, uh, erectile dysfunction, even in the younger age group, of vaginal dryness uh, as well. Uh, in regards to uh, the sexual uh, type of, uh, of things. And uh, let's see, what was, the, uh, what was the tenth one? Do you really want to know? I think we're embarrassed enough. <laughs> 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 All right, Don says we're embarrassed enough. I think that's good enough. You've gotten the major ones. This media was produced by Audioverse for GYC, Generation of Youth for Christ. If you would like to learn more about GYC, please visit www.gycweb.org. Or if you would like to listen to more free online sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.